Very excited today to share with you on this Palm Sunday uh, the word of the Lord. So turn, if you will, to John chapter 19. Those of you who know the book of John know that chapter 19 is the chapter that tells us about the crucifixion of Jesus. And you might be thinking, Dan, been around long enough to know that on Palm Sunday, it's not the day when you talk about crucifixion. We're supposed to talk about donkeys, and palm branches. We're supposed to talk about the triumphant entry. Well, one thing to consider is we did talk about that, but it was like five months ago. And, um, and John really slows down this final week here that we are stepping into liturgically uh, over the course of the remaining, from chapter 12, now we are in chapter 19. This has all been one week. But another thing that I was thinking about that I appreciate uh, as we step into reading this very important chapter on a very important week I don't know if you noticed this, but Holy Week is kind of a week where our culture doesn't really help us celebrate this reality. Sure, at Christmas and Advent, we get all kinds of Christmas carols and Hallmark movies and lights and candy and things that, uh, you know, just encourage us to celebrate the reality of the incarnation of Jesus. But that's only the beginning. This is the main point. This is the central reality to our entire faith. This is what we hold on to. If you don't get this, you don't get anything. And our world does not want to help us this week. I used to think earlier in my life that there was just a reverent hum in this world as, as things go silent. But now the more I think about it, I just think there is actually a conscious decision or a subconscious decision to reject this whole idea. There are rulers and authorities at, at work in the spiritual realms. They definitely don't want us to look at the cross. And I don't know about you, but I've gone through Holy Week before, doing my own thing, living my own life. And on Easter Sunday afternoon, just starting to get, get, it, get into it. Miss the whole celebration, the, the whole opportunity to evaluate where am I at and am I centered on the cross and is this my truth of truths? Is this my reality? Don't let that opportunity slide by this week. As a matter of fact, I want to invite you to maybe every single day, read John 19. Why not? Every day, maybe what you could do is read one of the seven statements of the cross each day this week and, and say it out loud and let that be your devotion for the day where, where you're just sort of absorbing and memorizing and, and falling into this story so that you can let that devastate you. You can let it move you and challenge you and inspire you. We have an opportunity this week to do the hard work. It's not gonna happen to you. You have to step into it. So I'm happy to read this chapter to set up the week as we look at the cross this week. If there ever was a chapter for us to stand while reading, it would be John 19. I wish we could do more. Take our shoes off or something. To Maybe in your heart, just know where we're about to step is holy ground. John chapter 19 and verse 1, I'll read to 30. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathering there, Look, bringing him out to you to let you know. I found no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, behold the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered them, you take him and crucify him. 
As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace and said, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. You refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have power to either free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. This was the day of the preparation for Passover and about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. So finally, Pilate handed, them over, handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. With him, two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate put the charge on the cross. He had a notice fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And his sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, each, one, each for one of them. And then his undergarment was remaining. This undergarment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. They said to one another, let's not tear it. Let's decide by lots who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, saying, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His sister, his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, this is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to his lips. When he received this drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Amen. Of all the things that could be said about this, um, I'll let it be. I'll let some of uh, leave some of the meat on the bone as we uh, consider this throughout the week, and as we uh, come back together this coming Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday service at 7 p.m. in this very room. If you uh, if you're willing to come out, <clears throat> but I have a few thoughts to share with you about some of this uh, that we just read. Phil Warner's last week read to us from chapter 18, and that chapter ended, well, it really began this conversation between Pilate and Jesus. It ended with the crowd demanding for a revolutionary or a leader who had taken part in a revolt, Barabbas, to be released. As Pilate and Jesus continue on, you can see here that Pilate's doing everything that he can to release Jesus. He's like, this is, this is not making sense to me why this person, that they want him killed. 
And I don't know if you noticed an inconsistency here with the way that they're acting, which again, just leads me to think that they have some conspiracy. They have something going on uh, that they're trying to do with Jesus here because it's not all adding up. I mean, in all my uh, interactions academically or whatever with strict uh, Torah following Jews and everything that they stand for, this seems a little odd. Okay, look, on the one hand, They're saying, we have, <laughs> we have no king but Caesar. Let me just say, the type of person in their world that would say that is not going to be the first person to say, I want someone to die because they broke the scriptures. On the one hand, they're saying, we're so pious and holy that we cannot tolerate this person to continue to exist. But then on the other hand, they're speaking out this unclean Gentile leader is their king. The type of people who would go one way would never even use those words uh, who are strictly religious. Uh, and then the type of people who would use those words wouldn't care. What's going on? Furthermore, did you ever notice that Pilate says to them, you have permission to crucify him. Go ahead, crucify him yourselves. They don't want to do it. Why? It's not because they're not willing to kill someone. I mean, we, again, we see that in Acts chapter 6, isn't it, where Stephen is being stoned. I mean, they can do this. It's not impossible. They want it to be a Roman cross. They want Rome to be uh, holding the bag for this. They want this to be associated with Pilate and what they're doing. When people wake up and come out and see the person that they thought five days ago was going to be their Messiah, their leader, their uh, revolutionary, killed by Rome, this is going to start some sort of rumble. This is gonna start some sort of uh, rebellion. This is gonna create some sort of con- scandal. That being said, they decided for the cross. So I just wanted to take a few minutes uh, in that context and just talk about the cross because as I just start to evaluate, think about it, um, I thought of kind of a striking contrast. If there's one thing, Jesus and I have in common. So we grew up around a lot of crosses. Crosses everywhere in our world. How did it become so prevalent? So this symbol has become so famous and popular. It's everywhere. People get tattoos of crosses, with necklaces of crosses on the hospital. I grew up in a church building, actually. My house is connected to the church, but you couldn't pull into our driveway without seeing a cross. I was homeschooled for a few years of elementary school, and my mom gave me the opportunity to paint my own desk. This was art class, okay? She got to do. I remember what I did. I don't remember what anyone else in my family did on their desk. I remember what I did. I painted it, spray painted a stencil of a cross on my desk. It's a Christian desk. Christian. cross is everywhere. Ironically, even though the cross has been around me my entire life, I haven't really thought that much about it historically. I haven't really thought that much about what it meant in that time and what that would have meant to experience in that world. Matter of fact, (laughs) I think it would be fair to say that I thought that Jesus made crucifixion popular. And maybe nobody was really that crucified before. I actually can't name a person before him. Well, I can't now. But I mean, growing up, uh, that was crucified before. Maybe after he was crucified now, people want to get crucified or whatever. You know, this is, this is something that he made popular. Well, let me give you just a couple examples of the reality of crucifixion in their day. You might remember 70 years before the time of Christ, there was a rebellion of slaves against Rome led by a guy named Spartacus. This whole saga ended by a a great battle where Rome crushed this rebellion. And what they did was they took 6,000 people and crucified them 
all on a road. 130 miles, they put them up, up on this road, Appian Way. Very famous Roman road. And that leads to about one every 40 yards. It's closer than any of our street lamps. Matter of fact, there became a popular, uh, Nero really popularized this with Christians, but there became a popular practice to use the crucified ones at night as street lamps. Gives us a whole another meaning to the term Roman candle, right? I mean, this is a reality in Jesus' day. Even right uh, about the time of his birth when Herod the Great was killed, uh, when he died, there was a Jewish rebellion. And this rebellion ended with 2,000 people being crucified in Israel. I think it's fair to say, there's one thing we have in common with Jesus so we both grew up around a lot of crosses. And I say that to, to say, uh, to not make feel sick or, or whatever. I'm, I'm not, I just think it's a striking contrast that the cross that Jesus uh, died on had every reason to be insignificant. It had every reason to fade into the background of some, another show of Roman strength. Just another uh, thing that happened in Rome. They become so desensitized to this. Why was it so important? How did it become so famous? Furthermore, the disciples of Jesus and the first generation of Christians really had to wrestle with this because if you look at it culturally, this was an embarrassing, embarrassing defeat. It was so shameful. You wouldn't use the word crucifixion in polite society. A Roman citizen, it was literally illegal for them to, to die this way. How did they start to talk about the cross and, and, and not just be embarrassed by it? Wouldn't it be tempting for them to diminish this shameful reality and then uh, lift up this resurrection theme? That's not what we find as, a, in, as you survey the New Testament. Something happened. And these guys say things like, when I was among you, I sought to know nothing else but Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. For different reasons, even now to this day, there's a temptation to be ashamed of this to be embarrassed by this, to downplay this, and just talk about resurrection, and just talk about uh, how to have your best life, and just talk about how this, this whole violent piece here, it, it, we don't need to look at that. Can you have resurrection without crucifixion? I wanna get to the place where I line up with the guys in the New Testament who were so impacted by this. They, 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 they saw it in such a way that they said things like, you know what? I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me, I've been crucified too. I wanna be crucified. Paul says in Galatians chapter six, this profound phrase I read yesterday, when they were talking about uh, being proud or, or boasting or bragging about certain religious uh, uh, practices in their world. He said, you know what? I'm not gonna brag about anything, but when I boast, I'll boast in the cross. Can you brag about it? This is something that you're proud of. This is something that you could articulate as to why you're proud of this and why you can brag about this and why you walk with a swagger. Something to think about. I want to get you there. I want to get there. The way I talk about it, how we engage with this, I, I, it should end in a place where we are proud and where we do say, I am proud to preach Christ crucified. Are you with me? Okay. So the thing about John that I love is that he talks about things nobody else talks about. I, you know what I mean? We, we, did, we did this the other day with Judas in the garden, you know, where we had that group chat about things that are here. Well, let me uh, just sort of point some things out to you here. As all four of the gospel storytellers tell us about the crucifixion of Christ, they have things that they each want to point out. Well, here in John, guess what we don't see? We don't see, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
We don't see the conversation with the criminals where he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, We don't see this big proclamation at the end of why have you forsaken me? But what we do have is a picture of Jesus and Mary. And what I want to specifically focus on is there in verse 30, as Jesus his throat's dry. He can't necessarily get this out. He wants to get it out. He asks for a drink, clears his throat, takes a deep breath, and with that last breath, pushes out some air to form a word. It is finished. This is spoken by Jesus, and it might be three of the most important words that we ever hear. Might be three of the most important words for your entire theology. Have you claimed these words for your life? Have you thought about that these words are meant for you and how they pertain to you? Because I tell you, it is finished. There is a word here for you and it is spoken to your greatest fear. It is spoken to your worst nightmare, your, your, your regrets. It's spoken to uh, things that hold you back. It's spoken to, it, it'll change the way you look at somebody who you would judge. It'll change the way you look at yourself uh, in regards to your sin. It is finished. This is your word. Now, as I think about it, I think about it in two different directions. There is an element of this that directly relates to us, an element that directly relates to God. And I'd like to point out those two things for you uh, briefly. You see, John wants us to be thinking about, uh, in this event, at least to some extent, mankind. Now, I don't think it's a mistake that John started his entire gospel with the words, in the beginning. And the book of Genesis also starts with the words, in the beginning. There are themes here that, uh, th- that draw us back to Genesis. And when I think about Genesis, I think about the story of a creator God who created mankind. And I also think about another big piece of Genesis, which is the creation of a nation, a family through Abraham. Both of these themes, ha- are these uh, topics have similar themes. Adam and Eve and the nation of Israel kind of tell us a similar story. Adam and Eve on an individual level, and some of those themes develop in a nation on a national level through Israel. What are these themes? Well, and why do I think about this? Because as you read, John, you start to see phrases like, and then the next day. And and you start to just feel like the same feeling that you get when you read Genesis 1, and then the next day. And then here we are on the sixth day. And just imagine yourself standing there when Pilate brings Jesus out and says in verse five, behold, the man. The day that, was sell- that, we, that we remember the idea of mankind being created. And so what contrast is being made here that would pertain to mankind? Well, as you continue to think about what they actually saw when they beheld the man, you can't help but realize there's something really wrong here. The Son of God standing before these people, bruised, battered, and ripped apart. Is this not a depiction of what's happening in the soul of mankind? Are we unable to look at this and acknowledge there's a problem here? (laughs) Well, what is the problem? How does this functionally work out? Well, as we go back to see the nation of Israel and go back in, in the scripture to see Adam and Eve, The reality is, is that they were given a role. They were created in the image of God and commissioned to be the people who display God to the world, living in a way that's uh, consistent with his wisdom, his order, and his power. This is the commission of mankind to display who God is in this world. Problem is, when we, or, or, or stop the problem for a second, Practically, how does this work? (laughs) Sorry. Sometimes this doesn't get talked about. I think how we display and how we were supposed to display who God is, is through worship. Don't roll your eyes at me just yet. Talking about something that I think you all know. When we adore something, we start to become like that thing. 
when we value something or someone, we start to uh, emulate it and mimic. That's why people who've been married for 25 or 30 years, they start to look alike. They've been smiling at each other for so long, the muscles start to, uh, this is a fact. I, I mean, this is true. They start to look alike. Don't even get me started about people and their pets. <laughs> so uh, we have this, uh, this call to see God and enjoy him for who he is, to be so impacted by the, the beauty of who God is that then we start to be inspired to look like him and show him in this world. When we trade that, relationship of inspiration and of adoration for something else, when we fall into the temptation of believing that something else can be better and something else can give us more and something else can be more satisfying than God, this is what the Bible calls idolatry and this process is what the Bible means when it talks about the word sin. It is to trade the right way of relating to God for, and worshiping something else. This has natural consequences that come with it. Think of a few of them here off the top of my head. Number one, the natural consequence that comes from this reality is when you give your affection and you give your emotion not to God but to something else, you become a slave to this. You become in bondage to this. When we give that power over to something that is a creation or even worse, that is some uh, being of evil behind this world, we become slaves. Naturally, as we were created to be representatives to God, another consequence is that God has integrity. God wants to be represented properly. He doesn't want to be confused, uh, confusing to the world. And so this creates a separation. The word in the Bible for this is exile. The separation from God delineates between, uh, you know, what we should have been and where we actually are. We're enslaved. We're outside. And being disconnected from the life, the light of life, the tree of life, and the farther that we get away from this life, we have to deal with this reality called death. What I want to tell you today is that when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he is a, it is a straight challenge to that reality that mankind has to struggle with. The bondage and slavery that we ha have uh, accepted, the separation that came from that, and the plague and reality of death that comes from that as well is all being confronted, challenged. And in the Greek word behind this, it really is the word that they would use for paying a debt. Paying it. Does anybody in this room feel a little stuck? Feel like you've given yourself over to something and you've been kind of become in bondage to that very thing? Do you feel like you have been neglecting this reality of enjoying God and reflecting him to this world and you've been enjoying this other thing that actually isn't creating any life? It's more, it's creating death. It's causing you to become more separate from God. Do you need to hear the word this morning, it is finished? As a matter of fact, is there anybody in this room who would be willing to just say it out loud? really loud so that we all can just hear it. Would anybody be willing to again say it? Keep going. Would anybody be willing to speak that word out over somebody who feels like they're trapped in regret right now? Would somebody be willing to speak that word out to somebody who feels like they've, they've, they're so stuck and they're never gonna be able to get out of this sin? Would somebody be willing to speak this out as a prophecy, declaring the testimony of Jesus Christ over this church and over this city of people who've been hearing lies, saying that you'll never be free, you're condemned, you're broken, you'll never be healed. It is finished. Say it again. It is finished. I got good news for you today. It is finished. 
The reality is when Jesus was brought to that place called Golgotha, it wasn't because there was a bunch of skulls there or because it looked like a skull. It's there's a Jewish tradition at this place where that Adam was formed from the dust of Jerusalem and when he died, he returned to Jerusalem. And this site was venerated to remember the person who was created here and ultimately the person who brought <laughs> death and sin into this world. And I wanna tell you that there is a moment where that cross stood on that very site above every, every, every reality that we experience of the curse or of the toxic venom of Adam in our life, where the blood of Jesus fell down on that rock and covered it. And he said, it is finished. It's done. It's over with. It's final. So behold the man today. And receive the word. It is finished. There's nothing you can add to it. All you have to do is receive it. There's only half of the, half of the coin. I'd like to talk to you about it the other side briefly here. As that is the direct benefit of man. Uh, but also there's this other reality here that I think often gets overlooked about uh, as Jesus in this same event undid and untangled all of the reality of sin in this world for man. He also gave a vision for what man was supposed to look like and we were supposed to be. And I wrestle with this because, and you might wrestle with this too, because of some of the stuff that's just enmeshed in my heart and mind about what victory actually looks like and what God is supposed to look like. And as I look at this phrase, it is finished, I actually sometimes implicitly start to think this is really, what he really means is this is not finished. It's not over. Uh, I'll be back. Uh, this, this, you know, you're going to pay. This is going to be, you know, we're, I'm going to come back. And like all this, it is not yet finished, starts to work its way in. And where does that come from? It comes from an assumption that this is, uh, that this is not something that, is a part of the character of God itself. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that I think that Jesus, in displaying uh, this act of love, shows us a clear picture of who God is. That all of his life is showing us who God is, but in, in this pinnacle, and in, this fo in focusing in this moment, this is the reality. This is what God looks like. It's not me who's saying this. All throughout Lent, we have been reading a verse from Philippians chapter two. This is a very famous section uh, you know, of, of scripture, it's a hymn. And the first half describes the ascent or the descent uh, of Christ to the cross. In the second half, it talks about the exaltation of Christ. You probably know this. What does it say? Therefore, he was highly exalted and given the name that is above every name because of the cross. What is the name that is above every name? I think biblically, this is a reference to Yahweh. The name that is above every name is the unspeakable, holy, sacred, like the name that God wants to be affiliated with, this name. And when he blends Jesus into this, in a sense, he is saying what he just did, I want to be identified with. I want this to be known as part of my identity. So when we read that first line, being in very form God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Rather, he emptied himself. We can sort of assume that that moment, you know, this was just something that he didn't, that he did one he wouldn't normally do this kind of thing, but he just did it anyways. It's not really a part of who he is. And if that's true, I think we're challenging an identity piece of God here. Rather, I would read it this way. Being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Because that's who he is. He didn't consider leaving us he, he emptied himself, right? He, this is what he does. He took the form of a servant because this is who he is. 
I've often thought, you know, it's kind of frustrating that we uh, have phrases like when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but nobody took a picture of him. The reality is, John only gives us one description of what Jesus looks like. This is your God. This is who he is. He is the king. He is not the kind of king that the world knows. He is not the kind of king that would go into this world and use all the resources to create the most uh, valuable crown to wear on his head. This is what he looks like. And this is the crown that he would have chosen, the crown of thorns and the purple robe. He could have used his power to create this giant global kingdom and made the coolest throne of all thrones, but the throne that he chose to sit on was to be nailed to the cross. This is your God. This is our king. This is who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the the fullness of the deity dwells within him. Look at him. Behold. The exact representation of the very being of God. It's important to bring this out to you today because it is also our call as Christians. If anybody would follow after me, he himself must take up his cross. Follow me. Anybody seeks to save his life? That's kind of like the world. Lose your life for my sake and you're gonna find it. There's a word that we have been studying and thinking about, uh, Rod and I at least, and we're gonna develop over the next few months. I want you to think about it, write it, memorize it, and, and, and pray through this word. Cruciform. It is a word that was developed in architecture where there were churches that were once created, like made in the shape of a cross, which is what the cruciform means, to be formed in the shape of a cross. If you're ever wondering, like, what is the practical lifestyle of a Christian supposed to look like and supposed to be? When things are off balance and we're not seeking cruciform, cruciformity, well, that's when we start to, to, to look like the world. That's when we lose the enigma of Christianity. That's when the world looks at us and says, you're not that much different than me. We're just trying to do the same thing. Just beat one another and just defeat one another. What the cross does is it redefines victory. It challenges all of our notions of what defeat and victory actually are. And to the extent that we think Jesus was defeated here is the extent that the pattern of this world that tells us about victory is still existing in our thinking. But let the renewal of your mind take you away from the patterns of this world. Redefine what victory looks like. And you will not need to defeat the person in your life that's against you anymore. When you start to become cruciform and see Jesus for who he is and see his identity and the, and the person that we claim to be in Christ and, and, and the person we claim to be, be, to be like will stop trying to fight with one another and, and, and to get victory over one another. And we'll start to see actually the victory looks like this, self-sacrifice, an act of love for your sake. That is when the church is going to start looking like the church to this world again. It's going to look like foolishness. It's going to look like a stumbling block. But it is the wisdom and the power of God. Behold the man. This is your God and this is your king and this is who the people of the New Testament looked at and said, you know what? I see God there. I see a God that I'm so proud of that I'd be willing to go to the cross too. I see a God that I'm so proud of that I'd be willing to say, I know nothing but Christ crucified and I boast in nothing but the cross. Maybe today we take one step closer to joining them and representing this Christ that we're so proud of. I'd like to end with just a brief word um, has nothing to do with it. Well, it does have stuff to do with this, okay? But just like to end on a note that I think is important, um, I'm convicted by. Let's take a deep breath. I've um, been through a lot of Holy Weeks in my life. And actually, do we have music? We do have a band coming back up. So, oh, you're right here. Never mind. You can just 
do whatever you want to do. <laughs> I thought they were maybe eating or something. Okay, so I felt like really bad. And I felt, you know, on Holy Week or on Good Friday or when we talk about the cross, I have felt often like if you don't feel like shameful that you're, that you're not doing it right. And I have felt uh, really negative about this. And so I just want to say, as I survey the New Testament, they don't talk about it in that way. Actually, there's much more of a resolve to put out there that this is an act of love. And I just don't want you to forget that. As we think about this all week, think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ constrains us as we consider one died for all. Remember Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where he says that God displays his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Consider, um, consider this bond that we have when we believe in Christ that, that is articulated in Romans 8 at the end there, that the love, this love, there's nothing that can separate us from this love. I am convinced that neither height nor depth or angel or demon, your past, your present, your future, anything that you've done, none of that is, is gonna compare to the bond that we have because the love of, Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus. I wanna get to the place where I remember what, or where I act in the same way as Paul did in, in Galatians 2.20, where he said, the son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Receive the love of Christ today. As you come to the cross, you bring your history and your failure and the reality that you live in as a human being and give it to him and hear him say to you, it is finished. And as he painted on the canvas of his life, a, a portrait of what God actually looks like, he took a drink and I like to view it as a cheers. And he looked and said, it is finished. This is your God. Amen. stand together today. I'm going to be the probably the only one not standing with you, but the rest of you can stand. And worthy of every song we could ever sing. And worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. And worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. In Jesus. In Jesus, the name above every other name. In Jesus, the only one who could ever say. And worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
worthy of all the praise we could ever breathe. You're worthy, Jesus. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, Jesus. In Jesus, the name above every other the only one who could ever sing. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. We sing holy and holy. There is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my
If anybody would like to have a word of prayer, as always, we have a group of people willing to pray with you to my right. Communion table is open. I'd like to invite you again to uh, come out with us on Friday night at 7 p.m. to a Good Friday service here. And I also would like to invite you to be baptized. For the entire month uh, of April, we're going to do baptism and uh, public profession of faith, if you will. And so uh, if any of the things that I've said challenge you in this way, we'd like to just uh, re-identify and reorient yourself. Maybe this whole season of Lent has revealed some things for you, then maybe it's time. Let's pray with me as we go. Wasn't Pilate that held you there? Wasn't the nails that held you there? It was your love for us. We received that. There's a word that's being spoken over this generation of condemnation, that's being spoken over this generation of failure. And we receive your word that's spoken over us, for it is finished. We trust in you and hold nothing. Uh, in our hands, but the cross. We thank you, Jesus. We're so proud of you. Help us to carry that in our life as we go. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, everyone.